Our primary reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When, did you, when you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who works from those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in their ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the first Sunday of Advent. And I think it's always important to first say what Advent is. Survey says it's a bit confusing. Because uh, if you're like from a non-denominational, like Southern Baptist background, like this is just like not a thing you did. Like except like maybe those little like chocolates in the calendars, like those, those, were, those were pretty nice, right? Um, but if you came from like a non-denom, you know, background, Advent was just really called Christmas time. Uh, and this is where you got to sing Christmas songs a month too early, right? This is, this is the rule. Um, but even if you grew up in a liturgical church, Advent can still be kind of a fuzzy thing, right? Like you remember the Advent wreaths as a kid. Those, those were cool. Uh, and maybe the, the Mary and Joseph figurines that kind of made their way a little closer to the manger like every Sunday. Like we, we actually low-key do this at Parkside on the, on the side windows, you'll notice in the coming weeks, which is vastly superior to Elf on a Shelf. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, there's like some colored candles, too, that like peace, hope, love, joy, like, but we never know what order they are. We, I, I, today, this morning, they're like, it's hope, right? Hope? I hope it's hope. Yeah, we're, we're guessing. So yeah, what is Advent? Well, Advent in the Latin simply means coming, and the season of Advent means a time of waiting. Remembering the waiting that happened at the birth of God in Jesus Christ, the first coming, but also reflecting on the return of God in Jesus Christ, which will be the second coming. But I, I think Advent is also about waiting for God to show up in my own life, which brings us to our lectionary reading today in Isaiah 64. Some of you might know the book of Isaiah as this absolutely massive 66-chapter book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's not just by the prophet Isaiah, but also by Isaiah's disciples, written over a period of about 200 years, and is finished about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, most folks associate Isaiah with the time that the Hebrew people were enslaved in Babylon, but Isaiah 64 actually takes place after Babylon has fallen 
and the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. And so the Persian king Cyrus permits the Hebrew people to return to Judea to rebuild Jerusalem. And this was supposed to be the happy ending that everyone had dreamed of for generations. This was the miracle. Because normally when an empire destroys your nation and carts your people off into slavery, it is only a matter of time before you're erased from history. Your language, culture, religion, your gods, all gone. And yet that doesn't happen to the Hebrew people. They survive. Their language, culture, religion all survive. And they even realize that their God was not confined to a temple, but actually goes with them even in the worst circumstances. And so with the stunning defeat of the Babylonian Empire, they now, 50 years later, can finally go home. Except there's expectation and then there's reality. <laughs> the reality is that the Hebrew people find other people on their previous lands. They encounter hostile pagan neighbors. They even have their own internal fights about resources and priorities. And so this is not the glorious homecoming that they have been praying for. And so Isaiah, in frustration, decides to remind God who God is supposed to be. So let's begin in verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. And when kindle fires, kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Isaiah is recalling the way that the Hebrew people experienced God in the past. And this was primarily a warrior God. Yahweh God is a God that defeats enemies. This God wins battles. And specifically, he's recalling the time that God crushed the Egyptian empire, freed the Hebrew people, parted the seas, and brought them into the promised land. This kind of God tears open the heavens in powerful wrath. This God does entirely unexpected things in order to deliver God's people. This is how Isaiah remembers God. And now he's waiting for God to show up in this way again. Now a warrior God is probably not how you have primarily experienced God in your spiritual journey. Though you may have prayed for it at some point, you probably didn't see God smite any of your adversaries. However, most of us are Christian because we can recall at some point in our past where we experienced God in a way that helped convince us that God was real. Perhaps you had a really important prayer that was answered in a dramatic way. And you were like, yeah, God's with me. Or maybe you've had really powerful experiences in worship, right? Eyes closed, hands raised, and you just felt like God's spirit was coursing through your body. 
Or maybe you've just had these moments of great peace and serenity. Even in the midst of these chaotic situations. And you realize that God was giving you a gift that passed your human understanding. Or maybe, just maybe, some of you even spoke in tongues at one point and you didn't say Hamala Kamala Harris. It was like a real thing. Anyone? Any tongue speakers? Okay, okay, that was even too far for this group. All right. Most of us, like Isaiah, like the Hebrew people, have experienced God in a distinct way that has shaped both our conviction in the reality of God and how we understand God to work in our own lives. However, There can be a danger in that I might over-rely on these past experiences. Verse 4. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Now, even though Isaiah has just said in verse 3 that God does things that people don't expect, that God does new things, it's clear from verse 4 that Isaiah does expect God to do what God has done in the past. Be that warrior, God. Clear out the pagan enemies in Judea. Do what Isaiah knows God is supposed to do. As long as you wait long enough, this is how God is supposed to work for those who wait for him. But what if it doesn't? What if God doesn't show up as a warrior God? What if God doesn't show up in the way that Isaiah is used to? Or more importantly, what if God doesn't show up in the way that you're used to. Verse five. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. Because you were angry and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. Do you hear the resentment in that line? The Hebrew people waited. But there's been no tearing of the heavens the warrior god hasn't come down and yeah okay maybe we made a few bad decisions too but the only reason we did is because you didn't show up god the only reason we sinned is because you were angry the only reason we transgressed is because you hid yourself god what do you expect do you think we were just gonna wait forever Y'all, one of the hardest things for me as a pastor here is to witness the spiritual disappointment that some of you experience at Parkside. Here's what I mean. After growing up in a big non-denominational church with really emotional worship, you might find yourself at Parkside because the theology is more sound, or at least not toxic, And, you know, the the worship, though, just doesn't feel like you remember growing up, right? And, And intellectually, you know that you don't need a concert and a light show to worship God. But God's spirit doesn't seem to show up like it used to. You miss that. And it's disappointing. 
Or maybe you came from a really tight-knit conservative church, right? Where everyone was like family. And no one seemed to have any doubts about their faith. And now you find yourself at Parkside because it's inclusive of women in leadership and queer folks in a way that your old church refused to be. But you know, you just don't feel like God is speaking through the sermons like you used to hear. And people didn't have as much faith now as they used to. And, and intellectually, you, you know that the, the closeness and certainty from your old church was really just the product of high control religion and, and doubts aren't technically a bad thing, but you just don't feel as on fire for the Lord as you used to. And you miss it. It's disappointing. Even if we're in this church, for all the right reasons. When we no longer experience God in the distinct ways that characterized our first experiences, it's easy to feel disappointed like Isaiah and not even be able to put the finger on why you're disappointed. And if you're here today for the first time, you're like, this pastor is terrible at marketing this church. (laughs) But really, I love this church. I love what's happening here. But even I've had to get used to seeing God show up in ways that I'm not used to. And so in these waiting moments, I know my thoughts can drift to these places of doubt that parallel the doubts we see expressed by Isaiah. Did I do something wrong? Or is God withholding love from me? Do do I just not have enough faith anymore or is God hiding from me? There can be so much uncertainty in the waiting. And if we don't catch it in time, the uncertainty, the disappointment can turn into despair. Verse six, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Do you feel Isaiah here? Is it me that's the problem? Or is it God that's the problem? Is my faith fake or is God just not real? I don't know, and at some point, I'm not sure I even care. I feel terrible either way. What Isaiah is doing here is writing a Jewish lament. And so if you feel like his logic, his train of reasoning is a a little uneven, he's not being theologically precise, that is precisely because this is a lament. Because right when I'm in despair, I'm not going to make complete rational sense. My, my feelings, my, my reasoning, it's going to be scattershot. It's going to be all over the place. And yet, Isaiah in his uncertainty of waiting on God, in the disappointment, in the despair, has this small but crucial realization. Let's look at verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are a father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. So what happens here? Isaiah's despair is not resolved by God showing up in the way that Isaiah has experienced God in the past. No, the hope is not just keep waiting and God will eventually do what you expect God to do. No, Isaiah's realization is that the way in which he and the Hebrew people experienced God in the past may not be the same way that they experience God in the future. How does Isaiah get this understanding? Well, it begins with, Oh Lord, you are our Father. Now, I know last week Reverend Hausman did a beautiful job of unpacking the divine feminine, the non-binary nature of God. And that's an important thing to know when many people use God as father language to prop up the patriarchy. But Isaiah's language of God as father here isn't patriarchal. It's relational. It's intimate It trusts not in God's imaginary maleness, but rather in God's intrinsic goodness. And so if God is relational and God is good, here's what that means. If God is good, then to whatever extent God feels hidden, Isaiah can trust that it is not abandonment. God is still present And if God is relational, the way that Isaiah experiences God will not, will not be one-dimensional. God can and should be experienced in more than one way. So for Isaiah, his understanding of God shifts. It it, it shifts. Look at the pottery metaphor. Isaiah's understanding of God shifts from a warrior God to an artisan God. From a God that powerfully crushes God's enemies with heavenly commands to a God that lovingly shapes God's people with bare, muddy hands. It's totally different than what he's used to. It's not what the Hebrew people have experienced in their past. But it is a way to experience God that is still true to the timeless character of God. A God that is relational and good. So maybe you won't have ecstatic worship experiences like you used to. Maybe that spiritual feeling is never coming back. It was real. But it was just one way that God wanted you to experience the Spirit. So is it possible then, in this season of waiting, that God has a new experience prepared for you? Or maybe you won't get the kind of certainty about your faith like you used to. Maybe some of those doubts you have will never fully resolve. That close-knit church 
where the pastor or mentor was like the mouthpiece of God's will. You were so on fire for the gospel. There was something so good about that still. But you were just a child in your faith. Is it possible then, in this season of waiting, that God is calling you in to a more mature and complex faith? But you know what? Even if God's sovereign and good will for my life means that I will experience God differently in the future than I have in the past, I can still trust that my past experiences with God will not be lost. They will not be put away forever. God is consistent even when God is dynamic. Why? Because as Isaiah remembers, God does things we don't expect. You see, Isaiah called for God to open up the heavens and come down to earth again. This was the formative Hebrew experience that shaped his faith. And it's clear that Isaiah misses this. And even though Isaiah is learning to experience God in a new way, that old way is still true. That old way is still real. You see, 500 years after Isaiah laments that God isn't coming down and tearing open the heavens and being on earth like God used to, a young Jewish rabbi named Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And when he comes out of the water, the author of the Gospel of Matthew records that this happens. And when Jesus had been baptized... Just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him. And he saw God's spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. 500 years later, God still opens the heavens. But instead of coming down with wrath to crush God's enemies, God comes down like a dove in peace to reconcile God's enemies. And instead of coming on high as the creator, God comes in the meekness of Jesus Christ with bare, dirty hands and muddy feet. This Advent, how are you waiting to experience God? And what experiences are you no longer needing to demand of God, to acknowledge that God is preparing new ways for you to experience God's goodness? Friends, hear this good news. The arrival of Jesus is proof that God will never abandon you that your waiting is never without return. And the arrival of Jesus is proof that God will do things that you do not expect, but will be exactly what your soul needs. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
We've got a huge group today and limited questions. Y'all made me get some work done. I actually had to ask Thanks, Colin Sam. a question myself. All right, Colin. Y'all are so nice to me today. Thank you. Should I try to seek God out, like actively seek him out, or just like calm down and wait for him to show up? <laughs> Be patient, as my boyfriend likes to tell me. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think there are different seasons where we should do both, which is right, a really annoying answer, right? Yeah. So both. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with seeking God. I think there's definitely, we've all had moments, right, where we feel like we've sought God, we've been intentional with, with either our spiritual practices or even being like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, you know, to show up at church for like more than two weeks straight, right? Like there's an intentionality <laughs> and you experience God in that intentionality and God shows up. So I think seeking God is good, but I think your boyfriend has good advice, right? Like, <laughs> Don't if you, nobody tell Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I will let him know. Um, <laughs> If you're seeking, you don't have to be anxious, right, about saying, well, okay, I sought God for a month and nothing happened. Oh my gosh, what am I doing something wrong? That's where you get to also say like, okay, I can be in a place of waiting. Um, and so that the two are not mutually exclusive, but I think the waiting, I think, can help give us a lack, like a, reduce our anxiety. So seeking is good, but don't, don't put pressure on yourself. All right, what's the relationship between intellectual questions about God and non-intellectual, more emotional questions? Uh, other than the fact that they're often jumbled up together, right? So, right, there, I'm, I'm guessing on this question is, like, there's intellectual questions you have about, like, okay, um, you know, the, the validity of the resurrection or the virgin birth or how the Bible came together and whether it was, you know, it's accurate. And then there's these emotional questions we have about, like, well, is God going to answer my prayers? Does God love me? Is God actually going to solve evil in the world when I see all those things. And those two things, right, there are a lot of these emotional gut feelings, and they overlap. Like, if you do the Venn diagram, there's, there's going to be this. Um, but it's, I think it's helpful if you're having, you know, some deep doubts about God or struggles to be able to identify which one of those, because one, it can be resolved a lot of times with academic research, and the other one is kind of a heart condition, and it's an experience condition, and that can help diagnose your, your maybe your, your strategy or your pathway for kind of working through those questions. All right, last one. If we're supposed to experience God in new ways, why can't I just go to the? Why can't I just experience God at the beach or in a new religion? Yeah. Uh, so some of you like to experience God at the beach because we're in Charleston, and you see a good, you know, sunrise, sunset. You're like, oh, the, the Lord is in that. I think you absolutely can experience God in nature. Nature expresses the the beauty and the handiwork of the Lord. Um, but as Isaiah says, you don't want to have just an exclusive one, you know, people are like, oh, I only experience God at the beach. Well, I'm like, Lord has much better things planned for you than just the sunset. Um, and the second part is, can you experience God through other religions? I think God is able to speak through other religions. But um, what I think is important is as you're kind of identifying how you're experiencing God, it's about going back to what is true and timeless about God. So Isaiah experiences God in a new way, but that new way is still consistent with who God is and who God always will be. And so even in your spiritual exploration, ask yourself, is this consistent with the timeless nature of God? It could be new, but ask whether it's consistent. And that's a helpful, uh, I think, kind of like test in yourself. Well, thank you so much for answering everybody's questions. And if y'all have questions or questions about the questions or online folks watching this later, We've been getting a lot of questions about the questions lately. Really? If I answer it bad, people let me know. Good. I appreciate that. 
Y'all, please text in more questions. Colin loves this part. And um, make sure you like us and follow us on social media, both Facebook and Instagram. So that way you can catch the rest of the questions and church updates there. Great. Thanks, Sam.